Hello and welcome to the Ocean Rowing Club podcast, where each week I will talk to a past ocean rower to get their unique view on the ocean rowing experience. My guest this week is Tez Steinberg. Hey Tez, please introduce yourself. Hi everybody, my name is Tez Steinberg. I'm 34 years old and I live in the Rocky Mountains just outside Boulder, Colorado in a very small town called Nederland. I am the founder and solo rower of the United World Challenge. The United World Challenge was my row from Monterey, California to Oahu, Hawaii in summer 2020, July 3rd to September 11th. It was just me in the crossing, 71 days, uh, and it was an independent crossing. We like to start with the big one. Why did you want to row across an ocean? I actually had originally signed up to participate in the Atlantic Challenge 2019. I signed up for that in 2016, uh, December 2016. And I thought three years is plenty of time. And it turns out it was pretty difficult to get ready. I thought that participating in a in the race would provide me with additional visibility, would help me fundraise, get sponsors. You know, it was basically a strategic play because it provides some credibility and additional visibility. Since I wasn't a rower or a sailor beforehand, it was that was my strategy. But turns out getting sponsorship is a hard nut to crack if you don't have an established brand beforehand. And as one person, it just was so much work. So in the end, I failed to fundraise enough to cover the race costs for, for TWAC. And in addition, although the boat was making headway, it just wasn't ready in time. So after three years of planning and fundraising, I switched and said, heck, you know, 120 plus 130 people have solo rode the Atlantic. Just seven had rowed from North America to Hawaii. And since my boat was being built in North America by Spindrift Rowing Company, I thought, why am I going to ship this thing halfway around the world and then pay a race fee? Why don't I just do a more challenging row off the continent to Hawaii? And it felt like a failure at the time to not be able to do what I originally set out to do, but it was really a blessing in disguise. A more challenging route, lower cost, just beautiful and a really amazing experience. And it was also very successful, not just in completing a, a safe and successful crossing, but in addition, the United World Challenge, we raised almost $77,000 for scholarships to schools called United World Colleges. And that was why I called it the United World Challenge, to raise scholarships to United World Colleges to give other kids an opportunity that I had earlier in my life that changed my life. In addition, the project funded the collection of nearly 200,000 ocean-bound plastic bottles. And by sharing the story in the years building up to the crossing and then the, during the crossing, sharing the highs and especially the lows, was able to inspire people. And that for me is one of the most rewarding parts of the project of the United World Challenge. And as for I wanted to, why I wanted to row across an ocean, you know, what led me to that point? There are a few things. Going back 10 plus years, I started getting into endurance sports while I was in university. I was going through a period of depression and really was just stuck. And a friend said, hey, why don't you join me in this little triathlon? And it got me off the sofa, got me off the couch. I started training, found I really liked it, and also found I was good at it. And as I surpassed my expectations of what I thought I could do in triathlons and in marathons and in Ironman and so on and so forth, year after year, that process also spilled over into the rest of my life. As I shifted my perception of what was possible in one domain, it helped me reassess my assumptions in other domains. So after 10 plus years of that, I got to a point where I realized so many of the goals in life, especially relating to endurance expeditions, are mental. When I couldn't deceive myself and I couldn't telling myself I couldn't do this or that. 
But additionally, there was a, a specific trigger. So in 2016, I was living in London and um, I'm from the States originally. And my dad back in the States uh, took his life. And that really shook my world up. I was angry. I was frustrated. I was really disappointed. And part of me just wanted to get away from everything. I was really frustrated with so many things in the world. And that was when I first came across ocean rowing. I saw a film about Sarah Uden, uh, who's from the UK and had rowed and cycled around the world. And that film inspired me, made me realize that a novice can get up and go and row an ocean. And after all these years of endurance sports, I couldn't deceive myself into thinking I couldn't do it. So rowing seemed like a great thing. I could go away, be in the ocean by myself. But I also knew in the time it would take to build the project that it would grow into something bigger. It could not only be a way for me to make my life count, but also be a project to be a benefit to the world. And so I started thinking, okay, if I'm rowing across an ocean, what kind of campaign do I want to build? And over time, I realized, let me build, I decided to call it the United World Challenge with the mission of raising scholarships to United World Colleges to spark action to clean the oceans and to inspire a more courageous world. Tell us the top three highlights of your crossing. The first highlight happened within 30 minutes. I had left at midnight on July 3rd because rowing off the continent, it's really essential to time the currents and also pick a really clear weather window. So I had about a four-hour window where the currents were outgoing and there was a calm period of wind. Typically, you have onshore wind, which just makes it really difficult for as a soloist to get off the continent. There was a short window. I left at midnight for Monterey. Monterey is a big fishing uh, fishing base. There's a lot of fishing vessels. And 30 minutes into the row, I just left the marina, was kind of cruising out. And out of nowhere, I hear this loud diesel engine roaring. And I stand up and look behind me. And here is a 50-foot steel fishing boat towering towards me. And I, I stand up and I'm looking at it and I'm just thinking, oh, fuck, like three years of work is about to go down the drain. I couldn't even make it out of the freaking harbor. Like this is going to be so embarrassing to absolutely everyone because it's obvious we are going to collide. And we do. But I dipped an oar into the water and kind of turned a little bit so it wasn't a full direct collision. We we're kind of at an angle. And once I stood up, the fishing vessel seemed to slow down and turn a little bit too. But we fully collided. And I bumped and skidded off of it. My oar popped out of the oar lock and floated away. And this fishing vessel, this fisherman, gets up and he's looking at me like, what are you doing here? I was like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? You just drove into me. Like, I've got my mast light on. I'm as visible as I possibly can be. Uh, my AIS, obviously, I couldn't have set to a short distance because there's boats all around that just would have been going off constantly. There were no other boats moving, but with boats in the harbor, it just wouldn't have been practical. And this, this fisherman... He's like, I thought you were a buoy. And at this point, I'm like, wow, this guy is drunk. Like, this is your home harbor and you think I'm a buoy and then you go straight towards me. But there was nothing I could do. I, I um, <laughs> managed to get him to go scoop up my oar and deliver it back to me. And I call my boat builder, Sonia Baumstein, founder of Spindrift Rowing Company, and who was also my duty officer for the row. And I explain what happened. She asks where I hit. And we did collide at the very front of my, the very bow of the boat. She's like, lean over, see if you can see any damage. And I really couldn't see any. And she's like, you're fine. Keep going. I was like, really? You're, like, you're fine. Keep going. You can't see any damage. You're good. Because here's the thing. Sonia built a five-inch crash zone. It's a carbon fiber boat, but there's five inches of wood crash zone in the very front of the boat in case something like this happened. 
And so I say that's the first highlight because I think if I was in another vessel, that would have been the end of the crossing. And if I wasn't confident in the vessel, I would have had to go back to shore to assess the damage and I would have missed the weather window, would have missed the tide, and there wouldn't have been another window for weeks and I would have missed my whole season. So highlight number one, I survived a collision and was able to keep going in a carbon rowboat. So huge props to Spindrift. The next highlight was actually the same day, Monterey is a national marine sanctuary. And I was surrounded by humpback whales all throughout the day from when the sun came up until it set. I was watching them launch out of the water, full breach, watching them bubble net, feeding on on herring. And then at the end of the day, four of them came up and circled my boat, which was just fascinating. And the third highlight, I would say was on day 45. Now, me being a total noob, I only had three days training in the boat because of COVID. So lockdowns, shutdowns, and, and all sorts of things derailed what I hoped would be a long training season. And with just three days, there were a lot of things I didn't know about the boat. And in the first week, I had storage hashes flood because I didn't uh, correctly thread my hatches on deck. And I ended up spending several days on para anchor while conditions were rough. And then these hashes flooded and I didn't notice for several days. So the boat was listing to one side and I thought it was because of the beam on wind and waves. And they were certainly contributing to that. But it was also because of these flooded hatches. And so I ended up rowing with one arm for a couple of days. And... um until I realized, oh, I need to need to pump out these hatches. Well, rowing with one arm while the boat was leaning to one side put a hell of a lot of strain on my rowing seat. And two weeks in, one of the bolts in the seat just broke in half. And um, I didn't have any spares. I had one spare that I used to repair my tiller arm that broke because I, I uh, in the rough conditions on para anchor, I had a pelican case in my cabin that launched out of the where I was sitting, I didn't strap it down well, and it broke my tiller arm. And so I used this long bolt to repair my tiller arm in week one. Now week two, the seat breaks, the wheel breaks, and I don't have I don't have another bolt. So I come up with all sorts of MacGyver solutions, and I'm just constantly doubting myself. Like the trip from the first six weeks, seven weeks, was just a, a constant battle of my own doubts and demons as I was rowing farther and farther from North America with more and more precarious solutions for my seat. But finally, on day 45, I melted down plastic in my camp stove to make new bearings for the wheels that, uh, for, for wheels where the bearings were wearing out because the seat was now lot, kind of lopsided. And that day on day 45, I realized, damn it, no matter what it takes, I will figure this out. Like here I am making bearings from scratch and I can make enough bearings to last me months. I've got this. And that was just a game changer. Really completely flipped the experience from one of doubt and dread into one of creativity and play and just a lot of fun. And that was also around the time when conditions got more supportive with the trade winds. And and, uh, so it naturally became more fun than anyway. What was the hardest part physically and what was the hardest part mentally? Physical, I would say, is fatigue. I was really short on sugar. Um, I, I really messed up my diet and took meals that were too protein dense and was just craving sugar. So I was super, super fatigued and especially rowing in shifts through the night, um, three on, two off. You know, if you're in a team, you get used to that. I did that for one week while crossing a countercurrent and um, it was just really, really, really difficult. If you're in a team, yeah, I think you get used to that and you, you adapt to that schedule. But as a soloist, I really wanted to row during the day and sleep during the night and the periods where I couldn't do that. <laughs> the fatigue was just wild. Um, and then mentally, the biggest mental challenge was continuing to row when it felt like I was headed for a certain disaster. 
it's just really hard to overstate the value of that. I thought, honestly, I thought for the first several weeks, I'd have PTSD the rest of my life if I finished, if I survived. It was, it was super, super, super traumatic. I would wake up in the morning and remember where I am and I'd just start to cry. Or I'd take a nap and wake up and realize where I am and just start to cry. And that was just so, so, so difficult. And it was really when things started to turn around, when I started coming up with creative fixes for the seat, that then that shifted completely. And I was so grateful to be out there. Mentally, there were some just massive challenges that took a lot of deconstructing and exploring when I came back to land to process because there's only so much processing you can do on the ocean. You process to the extent that you need to, and then you keep going. When I came back to shore, there was a lot to work through uh, to kind of get closure on all of these different chapters of the story. Excluding people and pets, which three things did you miss most while you were at sea? First is sugar. Like I said, I totally messed up my food planning. I had some paleo meals that I thought I would spice up with a bunch of honey, but it was not sufficient. And in addition, I just didn't bring enough diversity of the meals. And by the end of the row, I was going hungry. I would eat breakfast because I liked my breakfast meals. And I'd have protein shakes and snack bars, uh, whichever snack bars I could still tolerate. But I was literally the last week was just going hungry, eating what I could tolerate. So I very much missed sugar and more diverse food options. I also missed feeling safe the first half of the row. It's very traumatic to feel constantly like <laughs> I'm, I'm under constant threat of danger or that all of these years of work is going to be lost, that I'm going to have to call for rescue and leave my boat behind and all of these things. That was really traumatic. And then the other thing that I missed was antibiotic ointment. I brought three tubes, which saved my ass, literally, um, because I got these infected follicles on my bum and my legs. Like I said, I only had three days training and really didn't have good routines down before I left in terms of how to make sure that I'm wiping off my legs and butt from sweat. And I ended up getting infected follicles, uh, folliculitis. And the one thing that really made a difference for that was antibiotic ointment that I could put on my skin, put on, put on the follicles and they would come down and the infection would go down. And I thought three tubes would be plenty, but I didn't anticipate. I thought I would use it for cuts, things like that. I didn't anticipate that I'd be applying it multiple times a day so that I wasn't in constant pain when I was sitting down. Um, so I would definitely recommend bringing more antibiotic ointment than you anticipate. I had heard from a lot of rowers, like the training I did for Atlantic Challenge, they mentioned zinc oxide ointment. Zinc oxide ointment doesn't do shit. It is a lubricant and it has mild antibiotic properties, but they are very, very mild. Uh, so I brought tons of that thinking that that would be the gold standard for treating sores or rashes. And I got out to the ocean and was using it. And I texted my doctor who I had on call. And he was like, yeah, that stuff is really not going to do much. But I noticed in your med kit, because he had a full list of my supplies, you've got this antibiotic ointment. Why don't we try that? And that was, that was great. I just wished I had more because I had to ration it very, very carefully so that I could <laughs> still have some throughout the whole journey. How much training did you do before the row? Well, let's see. First of all, I, I've already told you I had three days of training in my boat. Was it enough? Yes, clearly it was enough. Was it ideal? Certainly not ideal. But let me back up a little bit. Physically, one year before my planned launch, I couldn't row at all. I had back issues, hip issues, different things that if I sat down on, a, on an erg, if I rode for five minutes, my back would seize up and I could, it just hurt to walk and I couldn't stand up straight. So I was in a really bad, bad spot. 
So I started working with three personal trainers. One of them was a trainer and a physical therapist. They were all donating their time and helping assess different biomechanical issues and then developing training programs to help me resolve those issues and, and also put on muscle. I put on 20 pounds of muscle or about nine kilos going from I'm five foot six and I ended up weighing about a little over 160 pounds before starting, which was primarily muscle, not much fat. And I started rowing more and more as I as my back sorted out and I was I worked up to rowing four hour sets on the erg at a pretty solid pace like um two two minutes per 500 kilometers or sorry two minutes per 500 meters I think was the the pace so I, I got to a pretty solid spot physically and that was absolutely plenty I really didn't need to do more the physical aspects were not what wore me out like my muscles weren't what wore me out on the ocean uh, mentally, what I did for training, I did some meditation. I did a week-long meditation retreat. I was journaling. I was doing emotional processing, emotional awareness. This is just absolutely essential because when you get out there, it's all of the demons, all of the doubts, all of these limiting beliefs that you know are really common that people have that are what are going to stop you from persevering. Now, if you're in a team, someone might pick up the slack or you might be able to process with them. Um, for me, being out there by myself, it was really essential to have as much emotional awareness as possible before leaving. So I really focused a lot of time on that. The thing I didn't train or practice was research. I was doing citizen science on the ocean, collecting samples for research at Scripps Institution of Oceanography to understand if microplastics become airborne through sea spray and waves. So I was collecting these samples every day. But I didn't practice it or research beforehand. And the sample collection, even though it was as advised by the researcher at Scripps, the process failed. All of the samples I collected every day, I documented sea state conditions, weather conditions, all sorts of things, all for naught. It was a, it was a total failure. So I would say if you are going to do citizen science, which I think is an awesome way to make a contribution to ocean science, climate change understanding, right? It's crossing an ocean in a rowboat is really unique. You don't create a wake. You're right at the surface. You're not disturbing the water. There's a whole bunch of ways you can use that to actually advance our body of knowledge collectively. So great opportunity, but I would just say if that's something you want to do, do a bit more prep, do some trials. If you have time in your boat, practice this because I think that would make a big difference. Those technical aspects that um, having some training around are really helpful. Did you suffer with any injury, sores, nasties, or sickness? As I mentioned, folliculitis, infected follicles, was pretty difficult. Also had tendonitis, super standard, started in my fingers, worked up my hands, worked up my arms. I didn't bring them with me because I didn't anticipate it, but they make these rubber resistance bands with five holes for your fingers, and then you splay your hand open your hand and the resistance band really that kind of training really helps for the tendonitis because what you need to do is the opposite movement of what you're doing all the time. So I've been using these resist resistance bands now for over a year since my row finished. I still experience some symptoms of tendonitis now. Uh, if I go and do a, a weight session in the gym, it's really that gripping motion. So recommendation, bring those little resistance bands with the five circles for your fingers to go in. Bring those with you. They will really help on the ocean. The other big injury I experienced was burned lips, not from the sun, but from salt. I had stashed chapstick on deck in a little mesh bag, thinking that that was really clever because it would be handy whenever I needed it. And after a few days, I realized my lips were kind of getting puffy. And then I realized, oh, fuck, 
this chapstick has gotten completely contaminated by salt water washing overboard. But by that point, the damage was done. And so my lips for the next week continued to swell up more and more and just get so painful. And then they split from end to end. And I would wake up in the night with a line of blood dripping down my face. And it was just a vortex of absolute hell, just searing pain in my lips that would then shoot down into my jaw and then back up into my face and then cycle back down my cheekbones back down into my upper teeth and then back into my lips. It was fucking hell. The sun hurt it. The wind hurt it. Food hurt it. And most of all, I really wanted to swim and I couldn't get in the water for several weeks while my lips healed. So be really careful about what you're putting on your lips and make sure that the ointment you use is actually ointment and not poison. (laughs) Which three songs remind you of your row? Now, this is a a funny one. On day three of my journey, my iPhone reset in my pocket, factory reset. I lost absolutely everything on it. My music, audiobooks, the phone was done. And thankfully, that phone was not essential to my communications plan. I had other iPhone, I had multiple other phones for backup and contingencies. But I lost all my music, basically, except for another phone that I had a couple of just-in-case songs on. But as a result, I really just listened to the wind and the waves because I had very little music that I actually wanted to listen to, uh, which was a, a massive blessing in disguise. When it happened on day three, it brought up all my shit. I was like, how am I going to cross the ocean without any entertainment or music? I love music and now I have none. It was really difficult. Um, but in the end, I am so grateful that I was present for my crossing and I was able to listen to the wind and the waves and hear the environment around me rather than just distract myself with music. That said, there were some times where I played music. One song that reminds me of my row is a song called Here for a Moment by The Human Experience and Gone Gone Beyond. It's just an absolutely beautiful, beautiful song. We're here for a moment, then floating away are the lyrics. And I listen to that sometimes and it really felt fitting. Another song is called Jewel of Now by an artist called Random Rab. Now, Random Rab is actually my favorite artist. And I was so disappointed that I didn't have any Rab. So at the end of my first month, I realized I had a little budget left in my began. And I downloaded (laughs) Random Rab's music in the middle of the ocean on a satellite device. And I played it in my cabin and I recorded myself listening to it for the first time. And as I heard the music, I just began to cry. It was the music that I listened to preparing for the row, music that helped me reorient when I was facing struggles, fundraising, building the campaign, all the times I wanted to quit before the row and was able to reorient and come back to my why, come back to my vision and keep going. And now here I was after the hardest month of my life, listening to that music again. And it just really just moved me to tears. So if I listen to that song, Jewel of Now, it really brings me back to that moment inside my cabin being so grateful that I have some music again. Ironically, I didn't listen to it again for the entire crossing, but it felt great to know that I had it just in case. The last thing I listened to on the ocean was Jesus Christ Superstar. I listened to the whole album or the whole the whole musical, the two acts, and then my speaker died. And I had a few weeks left in the row and the speaker was done. And now if you know Jesus Christ Superstar, you know it's super cashy. <laughs> and I played Jesus in high school in that musical. So I know every word. And as a result, with no other music to distract myself, I ended up with Jesus Christ Superstar in my head for a week. I would wake up from a nap or sleeping, and I, the very first thought in my head were lyrics blasting 
And that was, that was a bit of a challenge. At times it was fun and then it was kind of driving me completely insane. But eventually after a week that faded into the background and I was able to, again, <laughs> just listen to what's outside of me rather than what's inside. Did you suffer with any post-adventure blues? Now, after 71 days, 10 weeks, I did arrive in Hawaii and uh, was amazing to arrive, but it was also a challenge. And I definitely suffered from a lot of post-adventure blues. Uh, the first few weeks were not so bad. There's a lot to do, managing the boat, coming back to home, looking for a new place to live. I was pretty busy. But over the coming weeks, I realized I was actually quite depressed. And it, it took me it took me close to a year to begin feeling like myself again. And at first, I got back to land and I began planning my next ex expedition, pulling together partners, thinking about sponsorship, having meetings. And then I realized, you know, Tez 2.0 knows better. Tez 1.0, before the first crossing, would have rushed right into it. But Tez 2.0 needs a break. I just need a break. That next expedition will be there. And so I decided, let me do as little work as possible, spend as much time in nature as possible. Go slowly. I'm not training. I'm not running. I'm going on walks. I'm walking through the woods looking for antlers. I'm going fly fishing. I also joined a men's group. A uh, dear group of brothers from 30 to 65 years old who we all come together once a week to hold space for each other, share what's going on, process. And they were really, really essential for helping me revisit the challenges leading up to the row, during the row, after the row to integrate what I've experienced. Because you go through a big experience like this, the growth happens through integration. You might have a huge expansive experience and feel like you've grown, but if you don't integrate, reflect, you haven't actually grown from it. And so that difficult year after the row, that's where the growth happened. It wasn't during the row itself. What advice do you have for future ocean rowers? After the row, plan plenty of time for decompression. And if you're struggling, don't be afraid to begin therapy. You can join a women's group or a men's group and reach out to friends and family to talk. It's not easy. And the same goes for before the row. It's not easy. Give yourself time and space while preparing. In my case, the delays in my plans only made the end result better, right? The extra six months I had before my row from when I thought I would leave on the Atlantic Challenge to when I ended up leaving for Hawaii instead, that extra time helped me bring on more sponsors, helped me bring on more partners, raise more funds. So many aspects of... Uh, of preparation, take time. And if you find setbacks, look to see how it's working for you, not to you or against you. Now, another <clears throat> advice before the row, assuming financing is a concern that you're not able to just self-finance the project. From a strategic point of view, I would recommend demoing your proof of concept in terms of your campaign mission and your brand value by beginning charity donations ASAP. Now you can host events, you can do whatever you need to do, but start raising funds for your charity right away. Because what that does is that gives you credibility when you go to a sponsor. You're able to leverage that charity support and that public interest to drive sponsorship or a crowdfund or whatever it is you're doing. In my case, I started raising funds for the scholarships and raised about 15 grand and then pivoted from there when I realized sponsorship wasn't coming and I launched a crowdfund. This didn't go towards the scholarship fund, but I raised $75,000 on a crowdfund just to go towards my costs. I would not have been able to do that if I stuck to my original timeline. But by delaying the row from the Atlantic Challenge to the Pacific, I was able to complete the crowdfund, raise a 75 grand to cost, and then on top of that, bring on additional sponsors, and then have that whole campaign reach grow bigger, and from there, be able to raise the additional $77,000 for scholarships. 
Also pre-row, I would say, don't worry about training. You know, people spend a lot of time training and don't get me wrong. You're going to enjoy the row more. If you have more training, you'll be more comfortable. But I think the most important thing to do before you leave, if you're on a team, get close with your team, spend time aligning with each other, understand why each person is doing it. Because if you have different goals, priorities, those are going to come into conflict when you're on the ocean. And if you're by yourself, the same is true. Focus and understand your why. Why are you doing this? Your mental toughness, your clarity, because that's what you're going to need when you're out there. You can learn all the technical things when you're out there, but you need that mental toughness, that clarity to help you persevere to actually bother learning those things. From a technical standpoint, there are a couple things that are helpful to learn. If you have time, deploy your para-anchor and drogan training. It was absolutely harrowing to do that in the first, for the first time myself in a situation where I have beam on waves and I'm being knocked down. But again, it might be stressful, but you probably manage that. As far as during the row, the first piece of advice I'd offer is turn off your music. Go inside yourself. The world on land is full of distractions and music will be there when you get home. The open ocean will not. So be present with it. The next piece of advice is invest in a began and spend time to send content back. Yes, it's costly. Yes, it takes time. But I spent one to two hours every two days or, or more. I would spend even more hours writing my blogs and sending those back. But it was one of the most rewarding parts of the project to share the story with others. And it was fundamental to being able to raise a 77 grand for scholarships. A photo here, two lines of reflection there doesn't move people to donate. Share honestly about what you're experiencing, the highs, the lows, your doubts. If you're like, this is a waste. I don't know why I've done this. Say it and send back videos and photos to share with people because people have supported you to get there and they want to see it. And you are going to be damn grateful that you have that content for yourself when you get back. I know personally, all the blogs I wrote while I was out there, they mean so much to me now because back on land, you forget so much of your trip as time passes. And that writing is your record. It's your memories. You can go back and jog your memory by rereading those things. And then when you're back on land, do even more writing. Reflect in that first year before it disappears and really save those memories for yourself. And finally, I will just say it's going to be way harder than you expect, but it'll be wildly worth it. So keep going. And finally, would you do it again? Fuck yeah, I absolutely am going to do it again. I can't tell you now what the, what the journey will be, but I would just say follow United World Challenge and connect with me on LinkedIn, Tez Steinberg on LinkedIn. The next role will be late 2022, and I'll be sharing details on LinkedIn and elsewhere uh, in mid to late 2022. So thank you all. I'm really grateful for this opportunity to be on the podcast, and I wish you all an amazing adventure. Feel free to reach out if you have any questions. You can connect with me, Tez Steinberg, on socials and LinkedIn. Thanks. Massive thank you to Tez for sharing his story and all of his advice. I'm looking forward to seeing what's next for him. And make sure you go and check out his Instagram because he has some of the most awesome fashion moments during his row. If you're an ocean rower and would like to share your story, get in touch, theoceanrowingclub at gmail.com or via Instagram at theoceanrowingclub. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to rate and review and give it five stars on Apple Podcasts. And you can now rate it five stars on Spotify too. Like, share and recommend it to all your friends. And don't forget to join us again next week when we go back to 1999 and join our first Norwegian on the podcast for a solo row across the Atlantic. Toodle pip!